2: W A B E in Atlanta. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Wrightsis. Thank you for listening. As you look at the cover of Richard Antoine White's memoir, you might think the title is Impossible. And then you notice there's an apostrophe and realize that the title is I'm Possible. All the more remarkable as we learn this story of survival, a tuba, and the small miracle of a big dream. The author joins us now via Zoom, Richard Antoine White. Welcome to City Lights.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm honored to share my story, and the primary purpose of my story is just to inspire hope, so I hope we accomplish that today. Thanks for having me.
2: In the prologue, you write, based on how my life began, I can see that my musical journey seems like a minor miracle, that even the fact of my survival is some kind of marvel. Would you explain the complications of your birth and your early months of life?
1: I've always been fascinated by the phenomenon that uh, you know, we all start living and dying the moment we start existing. In my life, fortunately, or unfortunately, how you choose to look at it, started with me being born prematurely, so small that you could put me in your hand and close it. Oftentimes I'm asked, given the difficulties of my life, would I change anything? And the answer is no, it's the hand I was dealt and I definitely played it to the best of my ability. Outside of being born premature, my mom had her own struggles with alcoholism, which led to us being homeless. Uh, ultimately, years later, I view my mom as a hero. So this story is not uh, a pity story. This is a story of triumph, resilience and overcoming because I consider my mom a hero because she did one of the most difficult things there is to do. And that's to give your kid up or your child so that they can have a better chance at life. On the streets, My everyday existence was somewhat much like a normal childhood in that I was playing. I would play with my friends or whomever was out and about, but I had to find food. So I would look in the gutter, find coins, make my way to the open market and find, you know, chicken gizzards or a chicken wing or something, chew a little bit of it and then store the remaining under my tongue because I didn't know where my next meal would come from. And the rest of my day consisted of trying to find my mom if we got separated. Most of the time I was successful. And if I wasn't successful, then I find myself sleeping under a tree on a piece of cardboard or an abandoned house. And that was my my daily routine.
2: And you didn't think it was so unusual because it was what you knew. And there was such love between you and your mom. You mentioned that she was a hero. You bring that out immediately, and her love for you comes out resoundingly in this story. Richard, you mentioned you were a preemie. You weren't just a preemie. You weighed a little over one pound.
1: Yes. My foster dad, Richard McLean Sr., tells me that he would see me and he'd feel so bad. And, you know, in the book, I, I I quote him. He said, Lord, boy, you had all these tubes coming out your nose, all in your body. I didn't know what to do. And then he tells me that you could literally put me in your hands and close them.
2: And now you are six foot five and have a nice solid frame. Thank you very much. There was a horror story you experienced when you were just a few months old that must leave nightmares for your many readers. Would you talk about the scar you have?
1: Yeah, it's it's really interesting because I know a lot of readers will read the book and say, you know, how can he remember that so young, between ages of three and four and a half? The beauty of my story is that people are still in existence who could still recount to help me fill in the blanks that were missing from my story. I was eaten by rats and Ricky Jr., the son of my foster parents, told me, you know, they received a call saying the baby is crying in an abandoned, burnt house actually. And they knew where my mom dwelled. So somehow they knew who to contact. Where it got to Richard McClain Jr. He came running down there with a 22 shotgun and bodged into the burnt house and shot the rats. And he panicked because he thought I would lose my hearing. Turns out my hearing's just fine. And he sort of saved the day. I asked him because I have this scar on my side, which I never knew where it came from. And that's how I know this story.
2: Oh, you describe going to visit the McLean's with your mom and you... Describe the house as Buckingham Palace. What was it that you discovered?
1: I think not only the material things, I think routine. You have to think about the age I was. So I didn't really see Buckingham Palace as a step up in life. All I saw Buckingham Palace was this place I got to go to and these mean people that took me away from the one person I loved more than anything in my life at that age. So at Buckingham Palace, you ate three meals a day. That was insane to me. So I would eat lunch and eat half the sandwich and stick the other half in my pocket. And then they would say, hey, you know, if you want another sandwich, just ask for one. And I was like, yeah, right. I'm gonna stick this sandwich in my pocket. And then there were routines like, you know, cleanliness. You had to take a a bath and wash and then put on these things called pajamas. I would often take those pajamas off, put my dirty clothes on and sleep on the floor because that's what I was most comfortable. And then the anger in me, you know, they had this amazing living room with China cabinets and glass everywhere, a whole wall full of mirrors. I was so angry at them that for years, I just talked to myself in the mirror because I didn't want to talk to the mean people that took me away from my mom. So I would look at myself in the mirror and go, hey, I know you, you're going to be okay. Can you and I be friends? Look, you're doing the same thing I'm doing. And so that was my best friend. I learned to give myself a hug. And I think I quote in the book, sometimes in life, you have to learn to be your own hero. And I sort of learned that through, through the, the trials and tribulations at Buckingham Palace, which were actually blessings, just weren't seen that way at the time.
2: The book is dedicated to your mom, Cheryl White, and Richard and Vivian McLean, who obviously were not the meanest people on the face of the earth as you came to realize. Will you explain the situation that evolved with your relatives, where you came to live, and the confusion with names that you have?
1: Yeah, so if you're not attentive, the book may be a little confusing. I've got dinged on a couple reviews, but it's all right. I think the story stands as it is. So. My foster mom and dad, Vivian Richard McLean, also adopted my mom. So my grandparents became my mom and dad. This developed because uh, I'm told from Richard McLean Jr. that Vivian McLean had him, their only natural born son. And she was diabetic, so it created serious complications. So her and my mom's natural mom decided that she would have a kid for Vivian. That kid was my mom. And so my mom ended up living with Vivian Richard McLean. And when the incident happened in the snowstorm with me, those were the relatives that they, they contacted. And over the years, that relationship developed so much so that one day, Vivian and Richard called me into the room and said, we have something important to tell you. I thought I was going to get in trouble, actually. And they sat me down and said, we want you to stop calling us grandma and granddad and call us mom and dad. It was an emotional moment. It was a moment where I felt like I truly belonged in this family now. It wasn't just a piece of paper or legal guardianship, but it was from their heart to my heart that I belonged. As I've grown, I'm fascinated that it takes so little to make a difference in someone's life. And I think in our country, we have thousands of problems. I really believe that 99% of them can be solved if we were just kind to one another. And I'm grateful that they were kind towards me. I think we're not totally honest with the grade we're achieving are receiving when it comes to kindness. And so I think they took very little and made a difference in my life. And I want everyone to know that great people aren't born great, they grow great. And this book is dedicated to my mom, Richard and Vivian McLean, because they helped me to grow great. And the best part about this journey that I'm on is that I'm not done yet. Hmm.
2: That is an incredible moment when the McLeans tell you to call them mom and dad. There's also a heartwarming story about taking you to the store to buy school
1: clothes.
2: (laughs) Will you share that?
1: Yes. I don't even know if they're still in existence, but they certainly are not in New Mexico where I reside now. I went to a store called Kmart. I mean, it was like just unbelievable, like open up a vault of goodness. And I was told that I could pick anything I want. And yet, yet again, here's that idea of yeah, right. So I start putting jeans, shirts and tennis in, into the, the cart. And then I, I was, I paused because I couldn't figure out if I wanted low tops or high tops. They both look really cool. And Vivian said, you can have both of them. And I was like, wow! So I put the high tops and the low tops in the cart, and then I had a moment of panic because I was like, wow, all this stuff! And then as we were going to check out, I thought, oh my, who's gonna pay for all this? You know, I was like, not me. And uh, Vivian took out—I'm I'm dating myself here—a check and wrote a check <laughs> <laughs> and paid for everything. And it was a crazy moment because then when I went to school, I was—I was delighted. It was like Christmas, but I was picked on because. The stuff I got at Kmart apparently wasn't named brand. It wasn't Nike. It wasn't Chordash. So, though the kids made fun of me, but I didn't care. I had my new shoes, I had my jeans, and I was happy. Uh, At that age, those kids had no idea that I come from having nothing to something.
2: Oh, kids can be cruel. (laughs) I should add, you mentioned you live in New Mexico. You were born and grew up in Baltimore. If you are just joining us, This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Loris Reitz speaking with the renowned tubist and author Richard Antoine White about his new memoir, I'm Possible. Grandpa Archie was your best friend, as you describe. What was so endearing about him?
1: He was simple. I think he just loved me. I think it's love in its simplest form. Our favorite pastime was to sit in his room, eat peppermints and watch the Baltimore Oreos. It was amazing on an old school TV. And uh, I was just blown away. And, you know, kids can be mischief. So I would take a dollar or some change from his wallet to go get ice cream or be the hero in the neighborhood, buy everybody candy. And I know that he knew I was taking... Uh, money from his wallet but he never said anything in fact I think he ate it and put it out so I could find it so I could go get candy and I miss grandpa Archie dearly he was a man of very few words but he showed his expression in the most valuable way that I think you can and that's with time because time is the one thing none of us can buy more of and he definitely gave me a lot of his time and I love him for that
2: I loved him too from your writing Chapter eight is titled Trumpet Lessons, and this memoir is largely about the role of music in your life. Why was fourth grade a turning point, Richard?
1: Fourth grade was a turning point. I have to give Vivian and Richard a lot of credit because from early on, they had the mindset that... I may leave one day when I became of age, meaning 18, and go back to my roots. So, they often taught me in a manner that would allow me to take care of myself. For example, if there was a gallon of milk, they poured half the milk in a jar so that I could make my own cereal. And having done this, they taught me responsibility and independence. So, in fourth grade, I was going to fail, I was not doing well. They had this brilliant idea well, he likes music, so let's take his trumpet. So they took my trumpet and the rules were that I had to turn my grades around and be obedient in order to get the trumpet back. I really wanted that trumpet because music gave me a sense of belonging. I got to hang with a group of people that had a common goal and we were all cool. I don't know many places where, you know, you can play a musical instrument and be cool. Usually they call you the band nerds, but amongst ourselves, we were the coolest people in school. (laughs) Right. And so, I wanted the trumpet back. So I I changed my tune. And I've never repeated a grade since. I won't say I've never failed a class since, because that's just not true. But I've definitely put my best effort forward. And uh, that was a turning point for me, because I also realized in that moment that you can achieve a considerable amount of success if you work hard. But I don't want your listeners to walk away thinking that I think all you have to do is work hard in life because it's simply not true. I think the other part of that fourth grade story is that the village that I had behind me, meaning Richard Vivian McLean, all the teachers that believed in me, all the mentors. And I think along with hard work, it certainly takes a village for one to succeed.
2: You had your friend Dante also.
1: Ah, yes, love Dante there's some really funny moments I won't give too much of the book away but uh, I think if, if you read the book there's some really candid moments and just hilarious moments between me and Dante I still talk to Dante just talked to him two days ago and and we were just reminding each other that our friendship has helped us because of two things one our commonality and then secondly our differences and we chuckle we were like yeah you know, we we embraced all the things we had in common, and we grew from all the things that we had that were diverse.
2: You learned music by ear. What was TWIGS?
1: Well, TWIGS is a program for inner city kids. The whole purpose of the Baltimore School for the Arts, which is a program that TWIGS grew out of, is to give inner city kids opportunities that they would never have otherwise and twigs is to work in gaining skills and uh, I was fortunate enough to be in that program prior to that program here we go I'm really dating myself in this in this show today but I learned music from what we call a cassette tape I think you put it in this device and you, you press play, I think play, record, stop, rewind. I think those were the options or fast forward maybe. And I would press play and it would go boop, this is B flat, practice B flat, pause the tape when you have mastered B flat, continue. And that's how I learned music. So it was oral. So I never had the the visualization of actually seeing it when I first started. And so that's how I learned And when I got to twigs, my skills were pretty deficient. You know, it carried on through high school, but when I got to Baltimore School for the Arts, things started to change and things started to turn, and I learned to read music. And I'm grateful for the program at, at the Baltimore School for the Arts. And now we see across the country that most musical institutions have what we call preparatory programs, which are designed to eliminate deficiencies before you actually start the actual program.
2: When did you realize that the tuba was your instrument?
1: Oh, I think right away. I think the tuba represents me. For those of you who have never seen me, I'm hundred forty 340 pounds. True to form, I could have been a football player. The tuba is bulky. The tuba is often the butt of jokes. I think Trevor Noah almost made me pass out because uh, he said the tuba is always the instrument that we joke about. And then you have the sousaphone. Tell me about the sousaphone. I said, yeah, that's the tuba you wear. And so he goes, oh, you actually have to wear the shame. And (laughs) and I bust out laughing I thought that was brilliant so I think much like Tubby the Tuba if you haven't seen Tubby the Tuba go get your DVD player Netflix watch Tubby the Tuba the Tuba Tubby the Tuba just wants to play the melody and so does Richard I just want to be like everyone else but unfortunately because of stereotypes and labels the Tuba is the butt of all jokes and along with Javi Phillips dream and passion we're trying to change that and let people know the tuba is a serious contender. So it's an underdog. I am an underdog. And that that commonality makes the perfect match for me and the tuba.
2: Tubist and author Richard Antoine White. His new book is I'm Possible. We'll return with more of our conversation in just a moment. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wright. It's great to have you along. Let's return to my conversation with the acclaimed tubist and now author, Richard Antoine White. We've been discussing his new memoir, I'm Possible, and here. White speaks to his time at the Baltimore School for the Arts.
1: Much like the streets, the Baltimore School for the Arts taught me not only academics, but it taught me what the hustle was about. And if you read my book, you'll see the lengths I went through to get scholarships to navigating and negotiating. What changed for me at Baltimore School for the Arts, I was asked to participate in, I think, a guide-write program or something, some scholarship program for commercial. And after that commercial, they said, Yeah, so a lot of kids will participate and they're gonna get scholarship. They're gonna get thousands of dollars. And I went, hold oh, on, timeout. You can get money playing the tuba. Uh, what this? Right here. Thousands? Did you say thousands? So once I heard that, I was like, I'm finna come to school every morning, 7:30. I'm practicing this <laughs> too because and I told Dante, I say, man, you know, you, you get thousands of dollars with this. And so I started practicing every morning with the intent to get scholarship. Uh, It changed my whole philosophy in terms of grades being a a pathway to uh, a strong academic background, and that was my purpose. So Baltimore School of the Arts helped me to understand the hustle in mainstream terms.
2: And it was there that you met Tupac Shakur. How did he influence you?
1: It's interesting talking about Tupac all the time because a lot of the world know him as, you know, the gangster thug life rapper. I knew him as one of the most intelligent people I've ever met. I knew him as the theater major that sat in the cafeteria writing rhymes all day, but could get on the stage and do Shakespeare and iambic pentameter and just lay it down like, like he, he was meant to do it. He encouraged me to read, to be Uh, accountable for historical references he always would say you don't know nothing about the Black Panthers you need to read the Black Panthers man you need to know your history and as a result he was so articulate that I start looking up Black Panthers start you know wanting to know about history and I think you know he changed the world with his lyrics and his rap songs and I think the message from Tupac and a lot of the influential people in my life is tradition in addition to, and I think it's very relevant to what's happening today with technology. We're not trying to abandon or kill anyone's past tradition. We understand how we got here, but let's wake up, let's wake up our social consciousness and understand that how about tradition in addition to, and let's move forward together with everything. And Tupac taught me that.
2: I mean, I had goose flesh reading your Part of the book about Tupac. Early in the book, you wrote about the people who saved you. Richard, how did the tuba save you?
1: The tuba kept me off the streets. The tuba kept me involved. The tuba opened up my world to a more diverse world. Oftentimes, I'm often asked, you know, how is it being the only African American on stage in classical music? And my response is, well, you know, we all choose from the same set of notes. The point being that we all have the the same goal, and that's just to make beautiful music. So music definitely saved my life because of the dedication it takes to really get good at it, which kept me in a room trying to master this craft, which kept me out of trouble. It also opened up avenues because academically, I'm not sure uh, my academics alone would have warranted the kind of scholarships that afforded me to go to Peabody Conservatory, now Johns Hopkins Institute of the Peabody or Indiana University. So in those regards, it gave me what I often refer to as the three C's: choice, chance, and change. I think what we all want in life is simply a chance to make the right choices to see the kind of change that's for the betterment of all. And that's what that's what the TUBA did for me.
2: I loved the title you gave to chapter 14, which is Yo-Yo Ma should be sad he plays the cello. (laughs) You've already talked about the metaphor of the tuba. Can you tell us what it is about the sound of the instrument that you love?
1: Yeah, I think that chapter, you made me laugh because I grew up in tuba royalty. I mean, Mr. Phillips, first tuba player to play a whole week of concerts in Carnegie Hall. Yes. So... The tuba is not to be played with in that it makes me laugh because i said to a student one day you know why why should you play any less than yo-yo ma just because he's yo-yo ma i said we should make him feel bad that he picked the cello and so that's where that story <laughs> derives from so i think the tuba if you think about the or- orchestral responsibilities you know the trumpet player you know maybe two and a half octaves trombone same two two and a half octaves but the tuba player And French horns are responsible for five octaves and the French horns get to split it between high and low. But if you're a tuba player, you're responsible for five octaves. I think the tuba is just getting started only invented in 1835. To put things into perspective, it's not until 2052 that our first concerto will be a hundred years old and the world is just starting to see what this instrument can do. I think it's the most versatile instrument that we have outside of the piano.
2: perspective you give on that. That was the Vaughan Williams tuba concerto you were speaking about, and and you write about the effect it had on you. It was mesmerizing. It was transformative when you heard the Baltimore Symphony tubist play that.
1: Yes, I think I've always been mesmerized by David Federley Sound, former principal tubist of Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, And, you know, oftentimes I think things are confused in our world with dialogue because we all interpret things differently. I think there's a difference between emotion and motion. You know, motion is the rhythm of the music. Emotion is how it makes you feel. And hearing David Federally play the second movement of the volumes and the BSO stirred some kind of emotion in me that didn't need explaining. It didn't need a detailed description. It just made me feel a a kind of way and that resonated with me and I think it, it also created a contagious aura that I was able to admit to my classmates. And it was just a great and phenomenal musical experience. I'll never forget that. And that sound is still in my head. When I pick up my tuba, I still want to sound like him.
2: You ended up, as we mentioned, attending the Peabody Conservatory of Music, now part of Johns Hopkins. This is a major accomplishment yet there were times you felt you didn't belong. Why?
1: I think it goes back to this whole tradition in addition to, I went to Peabody at a time. And for the listeners here, you have to understand that Peabody Conservatory is the oldest conservatory in the United States. So tradition was embedded in those walls. When I went to Peabody, they did not have a jazz program. Oftentimes I felt Isolated not just by my environment and surroundings, but by the curriculum. So I was there to be trained as a classical musician, but I was stunned that there was no jazz program. And I talked to the director and I said, Hey, how come we don't have jazz here? And he said, Well, this is a conservatory. That's not what we do. And I said, Well, you realize how disrespectful that is? You're saying that, you know, my heritage is less important. And I said, There aren't a the different set of notes that we use for jazz than we use for classical, right? And he goes, you got a good point. (laughs) And so now Peabody has an incredible jazz program, it's thriving, Uh, it's full of diversity. And I think uh, that kind of participation and willingness to listen was very important to embrace this whole idea of diversity and move forward in a manner that allowed us to propel tradition. And in addition to add some musical outlets that, that are now shaping culture of our country. Yeah.
2: But there you were, an undergraduate, shaping the curriculum.
1: Yeah, I have to give the universe credit for that. You know, I have this long list of of village, I call them village people that help me. And I, (laughs) I think the world is part of that, because I think life lessons are very important, you know, even to the point of life lessons that aren't always in a successful manner. You know, I often have to coach my students up from events that they may have partaked in that didn't go the way they wanted to. And I have developed an acronym for failing and it's finding an intended lesson in needed growth. What that means is that there's something you needed to know that you didn't know that you now know, so you can fix it. So there was something that the institution didn't know about the, the presence of jazz that they now know that they now incorporated. So now we're all better for it.
2: I am going to remember that acronym, Richard. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Loris Reitz speaking with the renowned tubist and author Richard Antoine White about his new memoir, I'm Possible. So, your Peabody teacher, Mr. Federley, encouraged you to go to graduate school, which led to A bidding war for you. I mean, (laughs) like a great athlete. Tell us how that unfolded between two great universities, Northwestern and Indiana University.
1: (laughs) That's a funny story. I'll I'll give the audience a preview to my next book, The Five Educative Languages of Teaching. And in that book, I, I have several types of teachers. And David Federley is the true teller. And what he taught me most is that the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off and then you'll be better for it. <laughs> so I had already committed to Northwestern University to be the teaching assistant there. And I was calling Rex Martin, the teacher there, to, to confirm and the phone rings and then it's Daniel Parentoni, And he says, hey, I just want you to hear me out before you commit to Northwestern. I can have you go on the road with Canadian brass. So I was like, yeah, right. What are you talking about? Canadian brass? He says, nah, I mean, you can be ready to leave this summer. And I was like, what? And so I, call, I click over on the phone. David Federley's in the room. I'm in the room. And Rex and Parentoni are on each side of the call. I click over to Rex and say, hey, Parentoni said he can make me go on tour with Canadian brass. What you got? I can't compete with Indiana. You, if you want to go there, you just go in there. You know, that's a whole different ball game." So I click back over and I said, Mr. P., I'm coming to Indiana. I clicked over and said, Mr. Martin, I'm not coming to Northwestern. Thank you. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's how that story goes.
2: (laughs) Oh, it was fantastic. Many of our listeners know that I am very proud to have attended the Indiana University School of Music. You, you think you were dating yourself talking about cassette players. I predate the Jacobs School of Music. Uh, and oh, wow. your mentor and beacon, Mr. Harvey Phillips, was still relatively young at the time I was there. I think it was when he started the Oktoberfest, Oh, wow. Well, my first year was 76, which was also, if you were a basketball fan, the undefeated season championship with Bobby Knight.
1: Yes, that's that's an amazing time. I think uh, for the listeners that don't know, it, when you talk about the month of October, the last day in October was October 31st.
2: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and Harvey Phillips was a legend and here you are carrying on the torch would you describe Harvey Phillips and and your interaction with him at IU?
1: he's a dreamer uh, in my book I, I label him the dreamer a few years before 1976 and 1973 you know he calls up Rockefeller Center in New York and say hey I want to have hundreds of tuba players come by Rockefeller center, dressed in Santa Claus suits and play Christmas curls. They say, hey, do, do you know where you have called <laughs> and, who, and who are you? And you want to do what with what? He said, well, before you turn me down, how about you check my references to the likes of Leonard Bernstein and others? And so they checked his references, called him back and said, hey, Mr. Phillips, we check your references. You can have anything you want. When would you like Rockefeller Center? And so Mr. Phillips was incredible. He was the dreamer, full of ideas. He told me that the secret to success is to find something that doesn't exist, that is needed, and then invent it. Uh, I miss him dearly. I think he has been the most influential person over my career, my musical career, and how I develop and the person I am. And I think more importantly, outside of music, he and Federally have a huge role in my life in installing integrity. And that means a lot because I think as many great musicians that Mr. Phillips produced, he produced great human beings. And that's a very fine tribute to his teaching because it wasn't all about the music. It was about the music and the person and the people listening to the music.
2: So beautiful. So here you were arguably at the jewel in the crown of tuba programs at Indiana. Yet, once again, you were in a minority, as you put it, just six brothers in the IU School of Music. (laughs) Now, what was the impact of that in graduate school this time around?
1: Uh, I think we gravitated towards each other. I'll work backwards on this question because we ended up creating a scholarship, Brothers in Achievement Scholarship. Three of those six brothers got together and created a scholarship. So that uh, kids today wouldn't have some of the hardships that we had financially, which is pretty significant because I'm still paying back Sally Mae, but I'm still dedicated to paying the scholarship to Indiana University. And I think the impact that that had is community. I think, you know, in our society today, diversity, equity, inclusion is such a big thing. But I think sometimes, you know, we leave out the B and the B would be diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging. And so I think that that group of like people helped me feel a sense of of belonging. And I think naturally we gravitated towards each other, not in any malicious way. It was just a natural thing to do. And I think that influenced me because we all had one goal in mind, regardless of our skin color, which definitely made us feel a sense of belonging. And that was to achieve excellence. I often say that excellence is void of color or gender it's just on the level or it's not. And I think because we didn't want to let each other down, we upheld this level of excellence and it helped each of us uplift each other. And that sense of community propelled each one of us forward. Every single one of them is successful today.
2: Mm -hmm. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Loris Reitz speaking with the renowned tubist and author Richard Antoine White about his new memoir, I'm Possible. Part three of the book deals with your professional life as a musician, beginning with the New Mexico Symphony Orchestra. You write about how natural you felt in your new tuxedo. And I was hoping you'd talk about your solo in John Williams Suite from Star
1: Wars. Yeah, one of the solos I had to play was Jabba the Hutt. And if you don't know the Star Wars uh, series, it's just all tuba with a nice light bed of string accompaniment. And so when they do these special concerts in New Mexico, they really do. People come dressed up in costume, the kids come in costumes. And at that time we were in New Mexico Symphony Orchestra. So we were doing each concert three times friday saturday and sunday so i not only had to play Java on friday i had to come back and do a saturday and sunday and it was an amazing experience it was the first time i really got the sense that this community embraced me because i gained hundreds of little kids as fans and so much so that when we were leaving the stage a little kid said look mommy it's a real live of the hut and i was like (laughs) are you calling me fat kid (laughs) (laughs) yeah it was just awesome I don't know that I'll ever play it. Again, it's not often scheduled. Tuba players go their whole life and not play it. So the fact that I got to do it multiple times, is really great. I got to blend with the community and touch the community with the tuba. Keep in mind the tuba became cool at that point, like it did for me many years before.
2: I think you have a lot to do with keeping it so you were the first African-American to earn a doctorate in tuba performance. Your story is a testament to the power of family love and music as salvation. To conclude, Richard, would you read the prologue through the top of page two?
1: I button up my tux and the world shifts. For a short while, everything moves at half speed. I walk slowly. I sit slowly. I speak slowly. I conserve my breath, buzzing into my mouthpiece. I walk on stage and I'm greeted by the plumage of red seats, soft and inviting. Slowly, quietly, the audience bubbles into the theater, which is a glow. They hush at the sight of us holding out instruments flapping through the sheets on our stands or closing our eyes, trying to get close to the music one way or another. I play the piece in my mind, letting it unfurl just as I wanted to when I put my lips on the brass mouthpiece of my tuba. I inhale an epic breath and allow myself fleetingly to think I've made it. The lights dim, the crowd settles. The conductor raises his arms and the hall pulses alive. The harp, the piano, the woodwinds, flutes, oboes, clarinets, and bassoons, the strings, violins, violas, cellos, and bass, the percussions, snare, xylophones, bass drum, and timpani, the brass, trumpet, French horn, trombones, and tuba. All of our voices become one. One powerful voice that draws everyone present into a whole other world of hope and passion, sadness and joy, and possibility.
2: Richard Antoine White, thank you for writing this gorgeous book, and may the Force
1: always be with you. I am delighted. Thank you, and thank you for being kind.
2: professor and author Richard Antoine White. His new book is I'm Possible. More information is available on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. Coming up, Shelly Canavy, City Lights engineer and contributor, takes us to the new immersive Downton Abbey experience. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wright, says thank you for being here. Traveling immersive experiences are becoming commonplace in Atlanta, and right now going to Downton, England is as easy as visiting Sandy Springs. City Lights engineer and contributor Shelley Knavey recently made that journey and brought us back This audio postcard.
3: Downton Abbey is arguably the most watched drama in PBS history. For six seasons, Americans were absorbed in the daily lives of the Crawley family and their servants, and of course, the estate itself. Now we can step right into Edwardian England, thanks to a new immersive exhibition at Perimeter Point, courtesy of Atlanta-based Imagine Exhibitions. Mr. Carson, the butler, ushers us in, in classic Carson style.
1: Um, it does seem slightly odd to me that you should concern yourself with the kitchens and the servants' <laughs> quarters. <laughs> Just as I confess that I'm slightly surprised by the clothes that some of you have decided to wear today.
3: President and CEO of Imagine Exhibitions Tom Zoller says that thanks to his relationship with Carnival Films and NBC Universal, he was able to get some of the cast to be part of the exhibition. Zeller says that's a pretty unique thing.
0: Mrs. Patmore might be there and say something to you as you're walking through. Carson is your your greeter, and you get these moments where they're with you in the space. And you won't see many exhibitions like this because it's too hard to do it. And NBC and Carnival really leaned into this project because they care about it. And they allowed us to have that access and incorporate the depth of those characters in the experience. So it's, it's really, it's lovely.
3: Double doors open up to the character gallery where portraits of the family and servants are showcased alongside jewelry and knickknacks. This part of the exhibition bounces between the stories of the fictional Crawley family and their downstairs neighbors and the socioeconomic history of the British aristocracy.
0: The show took place from 1912 to 1926, and a lot happened during that time, right? I mean, a war happened, the Industrial Revolution was happening, women's rights. There was all kinds of important global change that was going on, and I think that that also adds to the richness of the story and to the experience as you go through, even if you're not a fan.
3: Moving us through history are audio and visual stories.
2: But it was the motor car which was to most keenly symbolize the
3: new possibilities, thrills, and dangers of the transportation revolution. Along with cheeky little drawers that conceal artifacts, including the telegram announcing that England was at war, Anna's arrest papers, and a certain paper bag that held Lady Mary's contraceptives.
0: That object just has the ability to sort of take you someplace. You know, like you remember that moment, like, oh, my God, that moment. Like, I mean, had they had a, a rolled up rug and Mr. The <laughs> inside, that would be a powerful moment for us all. But that was a little too risky, I think.
3: Moving on from the characters, we head into the servants' quarters. The kitchen, the servants' hall and even the staircase have all been meticulously recreated. It's like you're really there. When we head to the upstairs rooms, we find Lady Mary's bedroom, where she and Anna spent so many hours sharing secrets, as well as the dining room, complete with a lesson from Carson on the rules of dining at Downton.
1: The hostess decides when dinner is finished. All will stand, and she will then lead the women into the drawing room, leaving the men to
3: their court. Then comes the hall of costumes. Everything from riding clothes to day outfits to cocktail dresses and wedding gowns all even more gorgeous and detailed than they appear on screen. And don't forget to ring the dressing gong before you go. Downton Abbey the Exhibition isn't Tom Zaller's first foray into the world of immersive experiences. With Imagine Exhibitions, he's created attractions including Titanic, the Artifact Exhibition, Imagine Van Gogh, and the upcoming Harry Potter Exhibition. It's a unique niche he's found.
0: It's a nice area where you're taking historical or educational or art or different kinds of content and you're bringing it to life in a way where people can be in a space and feel immersed be entertained and hopefully you know take something away from it I I love what I do for a living I have a fantastic team at the end of the day we we entertain people you know we take you away from your daily life for a minute and share some nice moments
3: And as for Downton Abbey, as the Dowager Countess says, you'll find there's never a dull moment in this house.
2: City Lights engineer and contributor Shelley Canavy. Downton Abbey, the exhibition, runs through mid-January 2022, at Perimeter Point in Sandy Springs. More information is available on our website, wabe.org citylights City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., actors John Keebler and Gina Rikiki tell us about Baskerville, a Sherlock Holmes mystery opening at Theatrical Outfit, plus a preview of the compelling new documentary set in Clarkston, Refuge. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Wrights. And we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. Share your feedback with us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Or check out our pictures and videos on Instagram, where we are at City Lights underscore Lois rights. And of course, I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR.